Crawfordsville Library has a display telling the story of Malcolm Ross. Malcolm Ross is a balloonist who graduated from Linden High School. Along with other achievements, he is credited with setting an altitude record, this in 1961, setting an altitude record of 113,740 feet and in a hot air balloon. The purpose of the mission was to, to the most, it was at that time the most severe test to date of the Navy's Mark IV full pressure suit. This type of suit would go on to later be used by NASA's Mercury space program. As I continued to read and learn about Ross, uh, he didn't, I realized he didn't accomplish this flight alone. He was accompanied by a man named Victor Prather. This man was a Navy surgeon who also worked in the experimental program. As I was reading about the events of that day, I learned how the two men were lifted in what looked like a shark cage with seats. The flight lasted for just under 10 hours. If the experimental pressure suits failed, they would have certainly have died. With some tense moments during their return to splashdown, in the ocean, it, it, it appeared everything went well. Then I couldn't believe what I read in the last paragraph of the story. I read that Victor Prather climbed onto the rescue hook, but he was unable to secure himself. When the helicopter jerked upwards, he slipped off into the ocean. His flight suit was then flooded, and he drowned before Navy divers could rescue him. Prather's body was never recovered. For this accomplished Navy surgeon to have put in so much effort and achieved so much on that day and then to slip off the tow rope and drown, what a tragedy. You know, it, sh it shouldn't be a mark against this man, Victor Prather, but it's an example of a bad finish to a life of accomplishments. Today we're going to learn about how Daniel finished well. Here we come to Daniel well in his 80s. And he'll face the challenge of what he's best known for throughout history. The question is whether he will be able to finish strong or if he will slip into the mass of humanity who failed to finish as well as they could have. Daniel in the lion's den is a perfect example to us of faith under duress. It's also an example of an opportunity for a man to ruin a legacy of faith. And it's the most undiluted example to us of the supreme rule of God in an ungodly world. This is our last chapter in the book of Daniel and we close with chapter 6. If you remember, we've been moving through Daniel chronologically and chapter 6 really could be placed before chapters 10 through 12 which we covered but I really wanted to hit on it last in our period of time in the book of Daniel I really wanted to emphasize the fact that this is Daniel at the end stages of his life in the lion's den this is his opportunity to finish strong so we're going to move just through the book of Daniel and then we'll come back and pick up eternal principles that ring true through this chapter and ring true in our lives. 
But we're going to begin by looking at the prominence of Daniel. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. And let me just say in these outline points that we move through of just moving through this chapter in the book of Daniel, these points are not um, unique to me. They actually come from Dwight Pentecost's outline of this chapter. And so the alliteration cannot be attributed to me. But we begin with the prominence of Daniel in verses 1 through 3. It says in chapter 6, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Now this Darius, I want to just point out again, um, there's different ideas of who who he was. And we've taken the position as we move through Daniel, that he's the Median king who was given the responsibility over Babylon. Meaning, remember, we have moved through the Babylonian Empire and we talked in chapter 5 about the last night of the Babylonian Empire, the last night of Belshazzar's life in which he gets Daniel to interpret the writing on the wall and, and, and the writing on the wall was judgment for Belshazzar and That night, he lost his life and the Babylonian Empire came to an end and the Medo-Persian Empire began. And the Medo-Persian Empire was ruled mainly by King Cyrus, who was a Persian. But we take the position that Darius, being a Mede, he he has been given rule over what was the Babylonian Empire and a portion of the Persian Empire. And he reports to Cyrus, the Persian king. So it says it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Darius here has recently been established as the ruler of the Babylonian section of the Medo-Persian Empire. And he went to work to organize his political structure. The 120 satraps each reported to one of the three high officials in order that the king might not be cheated. One can tell that this is already an environment of corruption just in seeing the need for this political structure, keeping the king from being cheated from his tribute as it was collected and, and made available by these 120 satraps, Daniel being one of these three high officials over, I guess 40 of these satraps may be reported to each of these high officials, Daniel being one of them. And Daniel outshined all of them as we've seen previously in the book of Daniel and Darius plans on making him the ruler over this entire Babylonian portion of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, if you will. So we pick up in verses 4 through 9, the plot of the leaders. It says, Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. It appears that it didn't take long for Daniel to make enemies among the two other high officials and the satraps that were below them. They were likely jealous of his position as a Jewish exile 
We'll see this term pop up later as they're talking to Darius. It's also likely that Daniel simply would not play the game of cheating the king as the others did. A godly man's, listen to this, a godly man's greatest testimony should be that his most watchful enemies can't complain about his work except that he follows Christ so closely that he doesn't participate in the worldliness around him. So we come back to the passage here in verse 6. It says, Then these high officials and satraps can be agree- came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. So the two other high officials and the 120 satraps go to the king or possibly a representation representation of these 120 satraps come to the king and there's an interesting thing to point out here where they talk about they came by agreement now this term here is very interesting in that it means to noisily assemble as with a mob mentality they're they're following the wind of political uh, charge or political interest the idea is that they came on impulse with the intention of pressuring the king to decide on impulse. Darius would have been interested in a proposal like this. He would have been interested in testing and uniting the diverse people of his Babylonian empire. It would quickly take care of any who refused his rule. So it seemed good in a way of starting out. And uniting these people in allegiance to him seemed like a good and also a flattering idea. But I recently heard a pastor say, and I think this is true, flattery is like perfume. Sniff it. Don't swallow it. So Darius should have thought longer about this proposal. We see in verse 8 that it says, Now, O king, establish an injunction and sign the document, they say, so that it, can be a ch- so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Some writers reference the idea that the Persians were different from Babylonians in a certain way. The Persians viewed a king as being a representative of their high god or moods. Not only was praying to the king more expected, but it was also thought that his decisions would be considered to be divine and unchangeable. Also, making the king's decisions firm was also possibly a way to deal with corruption down the line of rule. In other words, if the king signed it and it had to be done, then no officials below him could change that ruling. And it points to the likely corruption that was involved in this empire. So this brings us to Daniel's response to this declaration, this document. And we see this in the prayer of Daniel in verses 10 through 11. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber 
open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And verse 11 tells us, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Daniel did not let the decree stop him from doing what was his custom, praying three times a day. It's likely that he followed the same practice of the psalmist as we read about in Psalm 55 verse 17. It's written evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. This would amount to praying at noon, 3 p.m. and 9 p.m. What's important is that Daniel kept going with the practice that was his conviction despite the consequences. We'll talk more later about how the rule of God supersedes the laws of men. And also we'll talk about the cost of following Christ. But let's notice that Daniel continued with this practice of giving thanks to God as he always did. He, he also was praying for God to intervene with petitions and pleas. He wasn't panicking away from his heart of thankfulness. And he also was prayerfully dependent on God to act. And this brings us to the prosecution of Daniel that we see in verses 11 through 18. Picking up in 11 again, these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Now first of all, we see this same idea that these men came by agreement. This is the same term as was used before when they came before the king, this mob mentality, this following of the political winds. These leaders rushed as one group intent on catching Daniel. And the certainty of their action, the rushing to his chamber, was only more of a testimony to the fact that they could count on his regular devotion to his God. It's kind of like they threw open the doors and said, Aha! We knew we'd find you here. But it's only a greater testimony to Daniel's devotion. Notice also how they entrapped the king into recalling to them the decision that he'd made prior to his knowing that it was Daniel whose fate had been sealed by it. So we pick up again in our verses. It says, The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. The prejudice of his fellow rulers toward Daniel comes out as he's, as he's referred to as one of the exiles from Judah. Recall, this is the same insulting phrase which was used by Belshazzar when he was forced to seek Daniel's interpretation of the writing on the wall in chapter 5. Then we see in verse 14 here in chapter 6, it says, Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. 
and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king. Notice that same mob mentality, same phrase, by agreement, using their political momentum to pressure him. And they said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. I'd like to just speak a side note here to the idea of bureaucracy. You might face bureaucracy, bureaucracy in your workplace. You might be frustrated with the bureaucracy of our government. Daniel experienced bureaucracy as well. He can identify with these frustrations. First of all, notice, the leaders convinced the king to write a law that would ensure the people's allegiance to him and him alone. But what the law actually does is empowers those who are intent on cheating him. And it condemns the person who is his greatest employee. Secondly, the king follows a rule of the irrevocability of his decree that is intended to strengthen his position and keep his rule from being corrupted. But actually, he is bound by his own law in the end. Because those who are corrupted have used it against him. Again, if you are frustrated with bureaucracy and poor decisions, maybe in your workplace or in our government, Daniel can identify with you. Then sadly we see that the king commanded in verse 16, and Daniel was brought and cast into a den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And so we find Daniel well into his 80s, left in the lion's den. Interestingly, the king expresses his hope that Daniel's God will deliver him. Because the king has made his own attempts with no success at all, maybe he's coming to realize just how powerless he really is. One person I did read did not have a lot of respect for Darius's well wishes for Daniel. He described his di- with disdain Darius's is, is his words with statements like that kings are often slaves to their flatterers. And he follows with, men admire piety to God in others, however disregarding him themselves. And it's likely that Darius fit into these statements. The sealing of the stone is thought to seal Daniel's fate warning anyone who might try to move it to free him. And it's interesting, I think it points also to how the, per- the Medo-Persian Empire required checks and balances that the signet of the king's lords had to be placed to, possibly keeping Darius himself from coming and stopping his own judgment. So we pick up in verse 18. It says, Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. 
But verses 19 through 24 bring us to the preservation of Daniel that we read about. It says, Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the lion's den. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Pretty amazing statement from Daniel. If you, if you recall, it was the, the other government officials who came to the king planning to entrap him that started with, O king, live forever. But there was deceit behind their praise and their well wishes. Daniel, on the other hand, here is still obeying God's command through the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles that wherever they would go that they should seek out the good of the country that they are in seek out the good of the people that they are they're there with still in obedience to that command through Jeremiah Daniel even after having been thrown into the lion's den can say to the king O king live forever He goes on in verse 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now, I don't know about you, but it's Daniel writing this. It's Daniel writing the account of this. I just wish that he could have given us a little bit more detail of what happened in that overnight stay in the lion's den. I don't think it was like the pictures that we see where the lions are laying on the ground next to his heels. And Daniel just kind of gazing upward, looking much younger than 80 years old, if you ask me. Daniel does give us some clues about how God delivered him. It says, it says that we're told that God used an angel to protect Daniel through the night. An angel that miraculously kept the mouths of the lions closed. Both his blamelessness, we're told, and his trust in God are pointed out as, as pointing to God's power to deliver. Now, there's no mention here, and this is the point, there's no mention here of Daniel being a great lion tamer or some sort of lion whisperer, or having some sort of magical ability over the king of the beasts. And that's the point. It was God who delivered Daniel. Now this story takes a grisly turn at this point. It says, And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom, the, den of, uh, the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Now this certainly defends the argument of the anti-supernaturalist or the naturalist who doesn't believe there can be any supernatural events, not even in the Bible. 
And these people that say that Daniel could have been delivered from the lions because the lions just weren't hungry. Well, they were obviously hungry the next morning when all of these men and their families were thrown into the den. This is a grim ruling on the part of the king, and it's a reflection of the Persian practice. According to the historian Herodotus, the punishment of an entire family was in keeping with the Persian law. But we can be thankful that this practice was outlawed in the laws that God gave his people. As we see in Deuteronomy 24.16 that says that the punishment of a father should not be carried out on his children. This was new to the time. At least in terms of countries like the Persians were concerned. Not that they existed when the law was given in Deuteronomy. But countries outside of, prior to the law, that it, was, it was a common thing for children to be punished for the sins of their parents. I'm just glad that the laws in the United States are, were based primarily on God's laws. This brings us to the pronouncement of the king in verses 25 through 28. It says, again, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now as we move into discussing the eternal principles of this chapter 6 of Daniel, I want you to recall that we talked about the experiences of Daniel as well as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel are like building a campfire. When building a campfire, you have to add larger wood after the smaller wood has caught fire. In the same sense, the smaller wood prepares the fire to be able to burn the larger pieces. And in the same sense, the earlier experiences of Daniel prepared him for this intense, life-threatening trial, just as the earlier experiences of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego prepared them for their fiery furnace ordeal. One of the smaller things that seems to be uh, that Daniel worked on was his commitment to prayer. This consistency allowed him to finish strong in the face of the temptation to buckle under pressure. But if you recall, it was be, Daniel's story began with him being a young teenager and refusing to eat the delicacies from the king's table and to not be swayed by them. And then into chapter 2, where Dan, the king had had a dream and Daniel was threatened with his life and rather than run in fear, Daniel goes to God in prayer and, and Daniel's life is delivered the earlier stories of Daniel, and as well as his earlier experiences, prepared him, I believe, for the lion's den. 
like the smaller wood on a fire, catching fire, needing to catch fire because the bigger pieces are on its way. So the temptation to buckle under the, the threat of the lion's den was on its way for Daniel, but his faithfulness in the smaller things prepared him for this. For us, finishing strong might be dealing with illness, marriage struggles, disappointment with financial or family issues. As followers of Christ in America, finishing strong may become about standing under growing social pressure. We take the eternal principles this morning from the decree of Darius. But we will see how it seems that his statements are used by Daniel to summarize the events of the chapter. Daniel 6 for harvest, I believe, is this. As followers of Christ, we need not fear man, for we serve a sovereign, living, and saving God. As followers of Christ, we need not fear man, for we serve a sovereign, living, and saving God. You know, everyone in this chapter, everyone but God and Daniel, are described as trying to control the events with their futile efforts. But God is showing us that his sovereign rule will have its way. Our first point here this morning is that we serve a sovereign God. We're told in verse 26, his kingdom being God's kingdom, his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. The king's law was in complete competition with the law of God as we've seen throughout Daniel. But you might recall that prior to Israel's deportation, God made it clear throughout Israel his law and his relationship with Israel that he will not share his worship with any other person or thing like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in chapter 3 with the fiery furnace Daniel is not going to bend to idolatry just like as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego said it's as if Daniel is saying as well it stops now meaning Daniel's and Israel's More Israel's sin in idolatry is going to stop now. And if you recall, when Israel returned from their deportation out of the land, when they returned from exile, they never again struggled with idolatry as a national sin. And I believe it's stories like Daniel 6 in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace in Daniel 3 that empowered Israel. And it doesn't hurt being exiled for 70 years because of your idolatry. So there's so much scurrying around here in this chapter 6. The other rulers are described three times as moving hastily with the wind of political support for their efforts. The king is described as working hard into the evening to avoid Daniel's arrest. He worries through the night and scurries to the lion's den to discover what took place the next morning. But God is not scurrying around 
in Daniel chapter 6. The king's rash decisions end up making him pinned down by the law he created. God, on the other hand, is able to suspend his natural laws in order to accomplish his will, sending one of his angels to clamp down on the mouths of lions. You know, I would imagine that Peter and his fellow apostles were strengthened by the the experience of Daniel. The apostles were imprisoned for preaching the gospel in Acts 5. When they were released, they were warned not to go on preaching that God saves us through Jesus, his son. In response to the threats of future imprisonment, they responded with this in verses 29 through 32 of Acts 5. Peter speaking says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those whom obey. Pretty bold words before those who had the power to throw these men into jail again. But I learned recently about how the king or queen of England is traditionally considered to have ownership of all of Britain. So traditionally, every field and house was thought to belong to the royalty. Under the king or queen, there are dukes. And under them, there are earls, which oversee entire towns of people. This is much like the rulers that were set up under Darius. The idea is that these people only manage what the king or queen owns. Daniel 6 reminds us that God is the sovereign ruler over every earthly ruler. They're only managing what he owns. Every other ruler and force of nature is in submission to the sovereign rule of our God. that there is definitely a pressure to bow to the demands of those who make political rules today. Josh McDowell asks this question of our popular culture. He asks, what is the number one virtue in America today? And his answer, tolerance. He goes on, but its definition, its definition has changed drastically. The traditional definition now referred to as negative tolerance is to recognize and respect others' beliefs, practices, etc. without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing. This would be like maybe seeing one of your friends on Facebook turning their profile picture into one of those pink equal signs, meaning that they're in agreement that there should be allowed to be marriage between two men or two women. Now, negative tolerance or the traditional definition of tolerance would mean that you might choose to still be that person's friend and to say to them, I disagree with what you think about this. I disagree with your opinion. I think this is wrong, but I'll still be your friend. That is traditional tolerance. But today, today's definition or positive tolerance, it's vastly different. 
It says every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyles, and truth claims are equal. Josh McDowell goes on. He says our kids are being taught that to say something is right or wrong isn't being tolerant. But God never once in the Bible calls us to be tolerant, end quote. As another author puts it, the new view of positive tolerance is this. All ideas and lifestyles are equal. There is no hierarchy, no absolute truths. So all opinions and lifestyles are worthy of respect and praise by all members of society. Personal opinions, morals, and truths that contradict somebody else's opinions, morals, and truths are wrong and should be abandoned. Makes you wonder who gets to decide which opinions, truths, and morals should not be contradicted. But the author goes on, anyone who holds this hierarchical viewpoint is a bigot, maybe even a dangerous fanatic whose viewpoint is dangerous to society. We are certainly seeing this starting to play out in our country with regard to the issue of marriage. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Merriam-Webster Dictionary has already added a sub-definition of marriage saying the legal relationship between two men or two women. We are being scorned for taking a position that there is one situation in which marriage can take place. And this is between one man and one woman. And we don't have a right to redefine this. This definition came from our Creator. But I do believe that once this definition does change, at least in our society, we will be seeing pressure to embrace it I believe that we could see pressure to embrace it and facilitate it as a church. I believe that we will be moving down the same road of other countries. Countries like Sweden, in which a pastor who preached a sermon against homosexuality in 2003 faced jail time. We could be moving the same road, down the same road as countries like Canada where many Christians have been fined for saying anything negative about homosexuality. Our culture has gone from supporting our faith to being apathetic toward our faith to being against our faith. This is our world today. And I can assure you that there will be greater pressure on our kids and grandkids when they are our age. Children need to be prepared for the pressure that they're going to face in the future. We as a church intend to prepare our children of this church with solid biblical teaching through Children's Church. But they must be receiving this at home as well. Teenagers need to have a solid, consistent group of friends who follow Christ with them. Like what we offer on Wednesday nights. Parents, Please encourage your teenagers to be a part of this. They need it in order to weather this onslaught. But the fact is that our God is sovereign over all the world leaders and over all of their laws. 
And we must commit ourselves to obedience to Him above any human expectation. We serve a sovereign God. You know, the miraculous events of God's immediate deliverance that are written in the Bible, they're actually relatively few. Think about it. There's been 4,100 years since God called out Abraham to himself. The miracles of deliverance of the Bible, they're not normal to everyday life, even in the Bible. But they're not even normal to everyday life, especially for the millions of believers that have lived over thousands of years. The fact is that many believers suffer and even die under the hand of persecuting rulers. But the cost of following Christ are worth it because we serve a living God. Verse 26 says, He is the living God, enduring forever. Daniel's God, our God, is one who is living and watching and interacting with those who will draw near to him. For Daniel, the cost of obeying God was very high. But the cost of disobedience was apparently higher. The bottom line is that Daniel would have rather been eaten by the lions to disobey his God. He would have rather been eaten by the lions than to disobey his God. How does this work? Well, I I would guarantee you that Daniel loved safety. He loved security. He loved acknowledgement for what he'd done. He loved being recognized. But you know, I love my kids. But I love my wife. She doesn't like for me to say I love her more. I, I love her in a in a unique way. And the fact is, the, f- the four days that Kelly and I had away from our kids, with our kids down in Knoxville, we loved that time. And, you know, we had kids sort of early. I, I am planning that 10 years from now, when I'm 50, we're going to be empty nesters. Because I love my wife. I want to spend time with my wife. I want to get alone with her. See, I love my kids and I love my wife more intensely. Maybe that's not a good example of this, but but Daniel loved security. He loved safety. He loved acknowledgement and recognition. But he loved God more. And we talked before that when we come to repentance, if we've taken security or pleasure or safety or acknowledgement beyond where it's supposed to be and when when we come to where it becomes sin in order to have that when we come to a place where we realize we need to repent of that then what we need to do is also replace what we're repenting of with what we should have in our lives which that is more obedience to God more time with God more devotion to God possibly and that we need to add to that repetition and that's how re- what a major way that repentance is able to be carried out in our life through repentance and replacement and repetition. For Daniel, he had replaced 
long ago, his desire for recognition and his desire for acknowledgement with his desire for to please God. And so when it came down to it, the decision had already been made. He would rather be eaten by lions than disobey his God. You know, we follow a living God and a living Savior in Jesus Christ. To be a disciple of Christ is to learn how to follow the living Christ. Following the living Christ has short-term costs and eternal benefits. And as we saw with the wicked officials, living by the politics of the day has short-term benefits and eternal costs. Someone could throw us in jail and away from our loved ones and comfort, yet we couldn't experience the sweetest fellowship with God and comfort from Him in that horrible circumstance. But yet we've heard testimony after testimony of how the unsaved person is never satisfied. All the friends and comforts in the world cannot bring them what they need most. Someone could snuff out our physical life because of our following Christ. We will only be ushered into God's presence and pleasure in His glory for eternity. But the unsaved person will, after their short life on this earth, be ushered into eternal torment. And like the lions in our story, in Daniel 6, Satan desires to devour God's children as those he hates most of all people. But like the men and their families that were thrown into the lions the next morning. Satan will gladly devour his own followers in the future in place of those he hates most. It's worth it to suffer and to serve a living Christ. To experience short-term costs for the eternal benefits While God might not deliver in the present life, it might not come immediately. We do serve a delivering God. As verse 27 tells us, He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Today we learned about the evil, conspiring, and shrewd politicians. And we learned about the unthinking decision of a king who'd been fooled. We learned about the unchangeable nature of a law of the Medes and the Persians. But we see that God was able to deliver Daniel from the cruelest intentions and the dumbest of bureaucracies. Now you might recall that there had been a lot of talk in Daniel about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. This is because this man was a type of the coming Antichrist. You see, God designed that the one who would be the strongest opposition to Christ would have types of people preceding him throughout history. It's also designed by God that Jesus Christ would have types preceding him. Daniel, I believe, is just such a type. Both Daniel and Jesus were framed by jealous political leaders. Both Jesus and Daniel were arrested while in private prayer. Both, both had leaders work for their release. Pilate worked for the release of Jesus. Darius worked for the release of Daniel. 
Both Daniel and Jesus were left in a cave with a stone covering the entrance with the ruler's seal upon it. Both Daniel and Jesus emerged from their tomb. Daniel emerged without harm because he was found blameless before God. But where Daniel as a foreshadow ends there, Jesus completes by dying for our sins and yet is resurrected. Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can have an even greater confidence than even Daniel had. This is what it means that Christ is our first fruits of the resurrection as we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If I should fall asleep, if you should fall asleep, meaning if you should die in this life, which we likely will, our God is able to protect and deliver us in the face of any danger. And followers of Christ, if they should die, can have confidence that the worst that can happen is that we walk the path that Jesus has paved for us through his resurrection and we go to be with him. You know, much of what I've been reading and hearing regarding the marriage debate could leave us in despair. Alistair Begg shares that it appears that people can't understand discussions of family values at all. Or even discussions of how the needs of children are more important than the needs of their parents. He says that these are concepts that are without definition when they're separated from their biblical source. As well, John Stone Street and Upton Sinclair, they talk of the fact that our culture no longer has biblical marriage even as a part of its imagination. They point to how our culture sees freedom as the removal of all constraints. So this warped view of freedom means that America, if it's, quote, the land of the free, it should be a place where everything is open to redefinition including marriage. But you know what's encouraging in this? Is that we see that Daniel's living testimony of faithfulness and finishing strong caused the king to change what he thought about Daniel's God. In the same way, we're able to live as God designed and prescribes according to his word. And the light of our life will shine even more brighter and even more clearer as the world grows darker around us. This closes our time in the study of the book of Daniel. But I hope more than anything that you're confident and prepared to serve God with your life. He is the supreme rule the supreme ruler. And we see the supreme rule of God even in the ungodly world that we live in.